This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. Lynn Johnson has been the first in a lot during her career. The first female photographer at the Pittsburgh Press, the only female staff photographer at Sports Illustrated, finalist for the Pulitzer, winning many awards along the way during her career. But what Lynn is still doing is making fantastic photos every day. And then we had a discussion about being on the masthead. I said, Steve, by that time, you know, I had a few stories under my belt and I was not a kid anymore. And I sort of understood the value of the kind of storytelling I could do. And I said, I, I want to be on the masthead. I mean, it's like the only thing I ever asked for. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from cancer survivors, Silver Star recipients, financial planners, and actor Claudia Christensen. Does it, does it break my heart at times that I lost at least a decade of my life to that son of a bitch? Um, yeah, I miss, the, I, I, miss, I miss those years, but on the other hand, I realize what I've gained from it and what I've learned along the way and how happy I am now and that I overcame an immense struggle and that I can stand firmly in who I am today and be proud that I took something unbelievably heinous and turned it into something really beautiful. The rest of my conversation with Claudia can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Lynn Johnson. Maine Farmhouse Brands was started by Dan McCool, a healthcare professional. His goal was to make premium soap. Most people may not realize how important the right soap is for their health and the difference between soap and detergent. Soap is made from natural ingredients like animal and plant fats, whereas detergent is made from synthetic, often harsh chemicals, even fossil fuels like petroleum. Maine Farmhouse Brands makes their own soap with natural ingredients, free from harsh chemicals. So if you want to keep your skin healthy and clean, I would recommend using Maine Farmhouse Brand Soap instead of detergent. You can find their body wash, shave soaps, laundry soap, and beard oils, and more at MainFarmhouseBrands.com. I am blessed to have Lynn on this podcast. I have been chasing you for a while, young lady, and I am very excited to finally get to have you on this podcast. Well, you're so sweet. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate being here. Yeah, it's um, you are one of those pillars, I will not dare say, on the uh, female side. I look at you as purely one of the great photographers that are still working. I have admired your work for a very, very long time. Um, I have from afar sat there and said, those are some of the photos I want to make. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so sweet. Thank you. Yeah. You, you are, you're crushing it as the kids say. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the gateway, the drug of for Lynn to get into photography? What was that slippery slope that, uh, that got you there? Oh, the drug. That is actually very accurate. Um, <laughs> we, I, we all have this problem, Lynn. It's <laughs> <yeah. laughs> universal. Yeah. Um, although it does take different forms, of course. But um, 
I didn't know it was a drug until, you know, years into the profession. But um, but when I look back, I was, I don't know, maybe in 10th grade or something. And I saw the work I was looking, I was like hiding in my school library, very shy. And so I uh, found the work of Dorothea Lang and I was like, that's it. I want to be in that place. I could feel it literally in my body. Had I known at that age that it photography is of the body as well as the mind, the commitment, the heart, um, yeah, that would have maybe been a different path. But I just felt this like tingling in, you know, my sort of like my torso. And I was like, okay, I, that's it. That's I. I know what I'm going to do. And so I thought, you know, uh, I didn't even see the like social justice aspect or, um, you know, I, I knew nothing about documentary versus portraiture versus, you know, whatever, travel photography, sports photography. You know, to me, it was all about people. And I wanted to be in the lives of those people that I saw on the page I didn't even think, I don't even think I understood that there was a camera involved <laughs> at the time or what that meant. Or like, what is a Leica? What is a Canon? What is, I mean, like, none of that mattered. Wow. So that's. You were started. hooked. Hooked, massively hooked. I went home, I told my parents, they were like, what? Now, what Can did mom and dad do? Well, they, they said, um, can you make a living doing that? <laughs> the quintessential parent thing. Yeah. Like, you want to do I what? Said, I, I have no idea. But my parents, who have now sadly both passed, um, I just said hi to my mom. Her ashes are on my mantle over here. Um, <clears throat> they were always supportive, 100%. They were always like, okay. How can we help? What what does that mean? And it's, it just started this, you know, project of trying to understand what photography was and how you get educated to do the work. And um, so my my dad was with universities most of his life, uh, Carnegie Tech, which then became Carnegie Mellon, partly thanks to his efforts, and Butler University in Indianapolis and. And so education was always important and um, and discovery and adventure. So they were they were there every step of the way, kind of rooting for me. Um, yeah, I was really blessed with the best parents ever. <laughs> when okay, so then when do you put a camera in your hand? When do you become a photographer? <clears throat> You know, I there's a picture of me as a like a brownie or a girl scout or one of those things, um, with a little uh, square camera in my hand. Uh, I think I kind of remember that. I think it was like mint green. You know, those were those girl scout covers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, the pictures were, you know, those square deckled edge. Yes. So I think maybe trees is what I was photographing. Not exactly Dorothea Lang uh, speed, but 
Um, hey, Dorothy had steps. I'm sure she did. <laughs> I'm sure she had steps. Yeah, she had serious steps. But uh, and then I think, uh, you know, maybe for, you know, a birthday or Christmas, it got a little beginner camera. I, I think it was an Olympus. I'm not sure. Right. I don't Something really, of that line. Yeah. Something that, you know, that small little OM1 or whatever it was at the time. But for you, it's probably the greatest thing ever. Well, yes, it was a confirmation that they believed in me, that my parents believed in what I could accomplish. They were always just, just do your best. Just do your best. Yeah. Were you an only child? You know, I'm adopted, as okay. is my brother. We're both, we're, we have no blood relationship, but um, so, yeah, it's just I'm the oldest of two. Okay. But in my birth family, I found my birth mom like 20 years ago now. Um, I'm the oldest of five. Okay. All right. But so, mom and dad, so mom and dad, though, in the house had two kids and they were very supportive and God love them. They provided you this instrument, this tool that you could, you know, capture the world in. That is amazing because some would look at you and go, oh, Lynn, just go outside and play. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> we're not getting you a camera. <laughs> right. But it's not even the camera. The camera was superfluous. The 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 real... Um, you know, the really amazing part of it was their support, their belief. Um, and I think that's more important than any gear that anyone ever gives you. Sure. I mean, cause from my point of view, yeah, anyway. because they had your back, they were understanding. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So do you and do, really, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say, do, do they, and then you start to take the little high school courses or whatever you could. And then there's the slippery slope into, you know, Rochester Institute of, <laughs> you know, I think I like worked on the yearbook at yeah. high school or something like that. And then went to um, RIT and, you know, it wasn't anything like you think it's going to be, of course, oh, you know, it's never. Uh, <laughs> You know, like materials and processes. What is that? You know, too, too much math. Can I see another course I can take, please? So, I, you know, I went sort of there at RIT. They had at the time the professional course, the fine art course, and that they didn't have any photojournalism. They had, um, I, for, I even forget what it was called. Anyway, it was sort of a, an in-between kind of course and i took that whatever that in between was and <laughs> so you get a little bit of the science of optics and mm-hmm. chemistry and you got more it's sort of, sort of the practical thing and then um i think it was like a junior or senior year we went to new york city to uh go to all the studios because that's what it was sort of organized to right so you know you're going to get into oh illustration it's called illustration photo illustration. So, you know, I thought it was an interesting combination of using your imagination and real life. So we toured these studios and saw all the way the photographers were working. I was like, I am not doing that. (laughs) I am not going to pretend that something is right or good or true. I want to be with real people. These are not real people. I mean, they're real people at some level in their lives, mm-hmm. but 
you know, the as they interface with the camera and the photographer, they're not real people. Right. So, um, so then by that time, RIT had one photojournalism course. One? One. Uno. Holy. And uh, I asked to take the course, and I kind of had to talk to the professor, and he told me, I will never make it in this business. And I'm like, you just watch. <laughs> so I think, you know, part of it was uh, being a woman at the time, being a young woman, and it was still, I mean, it's still massively male profession. Sure. Not as much, but, um, but you know, just even in your intro, you, you actually, you're so conscious of this being a woman photographer. Um, no, you're not just a woman photographer. You are a photographer. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's really difficult to kind of vault over that distinction. And at the time. Oh, at that many- time, it must have been huge, right? You must have stood out like a, just a sore thumb. Yeah, it was sort of like, oh, what are you doing here? Right. Yeah. So. But. uh, But it didn't hold you back and you went full force. Yeah. I mean, I just I just tried to do the work. You know, I just tried to do the work. And I I wouldn't say that I was like super conscious of the discrimination at that time. Um, I just tried to do the work. I just tried to enjoy what I was doing. And um. I probably wasn't really aware of the bias uh, until I was at the Pittsburgh Press as, you know, like a young photographer, newspaper photographer. And that's when I really felt the difference and heard the difference and right. saw the difference and how the assignments I would get and how I was treated. And um, <clears throat> so... Yeah, see, that's something people don't realize is you're assi- at this point in your career, you're assigned. So we're going to give Lynn this and we're going to give Lynn that. And it's not like Lynn doesn't get to pick the assignments. You're on that shift. You have the nine to five or the seven to four, whatever it is. Oh, what are we going to give her? Hmm. Right. I even had a guy, and I've liked the story before, but I even had one of the photographers who was actually, you know, one of the more modern thinking photographers. Um, say, we're so glad you're here. I was the first woman there and the only woman there, a staff of 16. Um, he said, we're so glad you're here. You can do the tea parties now. I'm like, God. So it's like, hmm, okay. So I sort of let that go for a while. And then, and who knows if any of this was conscious, but, and then, you know, like it was, there was the city desk was out there. And the photo department's back here. Mm -hmm. um, You know, they had these little slips of paper, had the assignment on it. And the city desk would just sort of run back with an assignment, throw it on the desk. And we had a a boss, a a very, a, a really fine gentleman named Dale Gleason. And Dale would parse out the assignments. Well, when Dale wasn't at the desk, and if a fire or a murder or a suicide or a recovering body from the river assignment came in, I would just take it and leave out the back door. Because I figured I would never, I don't even know if it was so conscious. I was just like, I want to do this. I want to see this. I want to experience this. It's not like I was trying to get over on anybody. It was just like, hey, nobody's here. I'm taking this. 
So like any good photographer would. Exactly. You're responding to the moment. Right. Anybody would do that. Well, I'm the anybody who was there. Yeah. And so I'm taking this assignment, but I did go out the back door. <laughs> what, was that interesting for you early in your career to, to when you see that assignment, feel your heartbeat just go up? Oh, yeah. oh totally. Totally. No, it was the same as in the library all those years ago. You know, you're immediately triggered and um, and who knows why you need that or where that comes from. Probably infancy where, you know, now I know more about the body and infant childhood development. And I know so much more about the physiology of mm-hmm. stress, and trauma and um you mean 25-year-old Lynn didn't know that? <laughs> <laughs> I was experiencing it. I didn't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, I just remember experiencing it early on, and, and, and I, was, I wasn't sure what was going on. I was mm. like, I can't believe I'm this excited. Why am I this excited? It's just, yeah. but you are, and you don't realize it until you're driving in the car, and you just want to get to that job and shoot it. And you, you, yeah. Did I bring film? And that's the, you know, it's like. <laughs> Am I thinking? No. Yeah. Yeah, no. And it does come to a point where you're not thinking. It's automatic. You're just, you're hitting it. You got your light meter. You're checking. You're doing all this thing. You're looking at, you know, right. You're you're telling your age, man. Yeah, well, that, hey, was it not our dog tags? It really was. Yeah. That, that thing yeah. hung around my neck for years. Yeah. I really actually kind of miss the light meter. Um, I still have two. Do you really? still have two. Yep. My Minolta meters. I mean, that just think about the how the process was different then. You took the time, you took the meter, you took the reading, you thought about that, you set the camera, and then you proceeded. That moment of contemplative time, I mean, that actually has great value. It does. I still use it, it's a trick. I use with subjects in the studio because everybody now just pulls up a phone and can take a picture, right? Mm -hmm. But in 1985, if you went to a studio to get a portrait done, it meant something. Everybody put on their finest outfit. We were going to take a family Mm -hmm. photo. Off we went. So if I have a subject and, you know, I, I was photographing a dean the other day at the university and she's. I don't know why she's a beautiful woman, but she's self-conscious. She's worried about what to wear and her hair and this and that. I had her sitting down and I pull out the light meter. I didn't need it, but I still use it. And I pull it out and I take an exposure. You could see now in her, and I'm giving this away. Hopefully she doesn't hear this. Is that like, wow, this, this is meaning something. He is, is he is slowing down the process. Like you said, and Mm -hmm. now the no camera is involved. We're just talking. What are you doing? Mm. What is that? What, what, what? And I explain, mm. this gives me the correct exposure. Mm. I don't have to look at the back of my camera, that disconnect, that damn camera. And it, mm-hmm. it really breaks people down. Mm-hmm. Or it opens them up. I mean, what is the goal? Is it, <clears throat> and I think that's a big part of the kind of photography you choose to do or the way you choose your process is is the goal, you know, to take a photograph or is the goal to be gifted a photograph? And I think that's a fundamental difference in 
you know, like sports photography versus documentary photography. Mm -hmm. Sports photography is, we were talking the other day, is, um, you know, a much more uh, kind of aggressive kind of photography. Oh, yeah. So I think, you know, do you have a different body response on the way to that assignment and a news assignment versus uh, an assignment or a project where you're going to be kind of embedded in in a family's life? That's a different thing. Oh. And I think that's a different body experience and a different level of responsibility. Mm-hmm. For you at your time at Pittsburgh, did you feel yourself evolving mm. as a photographer? Because mm. those are your early years. Those are influential years. You're getting experience now with a broad range of tea parties. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. As few as possible. Yeah. Was possible. So, but then I, I also noticed that even at a tea party or at an event, you can still find a meaningful human moment. And once I realized that, I thought, oh, hmm, yes, not the, it's not the nature of the, assignment it's how you choose to do the assignment and how you choose to look more deeply into what's going on and so um then then being given that kind of assignment wasn't a weapon anymore you know i sort of tried to figure that out how to make the best of whatever assignment and then then like i developed this you take every assignment you know when I talk to young people, I say, you take every assignment that comes down the road. It doesn't matter what it is. You are going to learn something, you're going to grow. And so I think that's where that philosophy came from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Young people want to be just award-winning documentary photographers or, uh, you know, some high-level photographer, like right out of the gate. No, man, you need like 40 fucking years to do that. You do. You do. Yeah, you need, you need time. You need time. You need to mature as a human and as a person with compassion and empathy and knowledge. And you need to know the subject matter. You need to know the people that you're working with and and to be able to see their lives and listen to them. If you can tell young Lynn something early in her career, what would it be? What could what would you go back and tell yourself? Oh, I definitely had a chip on my shoulder from the time at the press, Um, you know, so being minimized. and uh, So I think it's really important to avoid that if you can. Yeah. A lot of people feel like they're the target, I think, especially women, maybe. And still today, no question. Um, So that gets in our way. That gets in the way of being creative, gets in the way of seeing clearly and making the best photographs, but most importantly, of bringing your best self to the work. You need to bring your healthiest, best self to the work. You cannot be healthy if you are always um, feel the victim or feel on guard. or um, So we really have to know that that's whoever's treating you that way. That's their problem right that's on them not you yes it's hard to do that but um i think that's that's just you know maturity sure what 
was it in 1982 that wanted you to make that jump to the freelance world? So um, I knew that I wanted to do longer form work and um, I couldn't really do it at the newspaper. I, I was sort of making the most of what was available um, you know, doing longer stories, but seeing the work not really used deeply. And, and then they give me a hard time about taking the time, but I use my own time to photograph. So I, I just like got this phone call one day from a guy named Clark Warswick, who asked if I wanted to do a project about um, fishermen on Long Island. And I was like, who are you? But yes, <laughs> do it. Uh, because I had no idea, you know, I was living in this little bubble of Pittsburgh and the newspaper, and I didn't know anything about the photography world other than looking at magazines and books and such. So that was, um, that was a great leap. I mean, it was moving to Amagansett, Long Island, Springs, the East Hampton area that, you know, is such an elite place, but really I was working with the people who were going out fishing every day. Right. And um, it was funded by uh, the Dominial Foundation, Adelaide Dominial. The, the Dominials are, you know, massive supporters of the arts. Um, and it, I worked on that for about a year or a little more off and on. Wow. Just, it was like a pure, pure, pure documentary project the likes of which can never be supported in a magazine system or a newspaper system. You know, it's really, it was, it was so, um, it was such a great opportunity. What a, what an opportunity out the gate. My God. Yeah. Yeah. It really was. And then, and then after that, I started working a bit for black star. Where did the work get shown? Where did, did it get published? Uh, it, yes. It became a book called men's lives. Okay. So that's the men's lives book. Okay. Yeah. There were six, uh, six or seven photographers working on it. Jean Gomi and Martin Franck. And um, there was a young man who was actually a bayman himself who actually, actually suggested the project to Adelaide. So there were, um, yeah, there were about six or seven photographers. How did and they find you? I have no idea. I have no idea. You never asked. You never wanted. To, you just were, I'll take the job. <laughs> because it's, you know, it's not like you were running around New England. I wasn't like getting out there. I wasn't, you know, showing work to anyone. I wasn't, no, I wasn't doing any of that. I was doing my little daily assignments in Pittsburgh, PA. So I have no idea. Isn't it interesting how the universe finds, you know, finds you, yeah. you're, you're, you know, in mm -hmm. Pittsburgh doing your little thing and someone just reaches down and goes, we're going to pick her out. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually hired me to follow the women and the kids and I'm, and, I, and the same thing happened. I was like, that's cool. And I did that for a while. And then I, I said, but I want to go to the beach and be with the guys. So I did that too. And that you could do whatever you wanted, really. It was a great experience. Was that then like a rocket ship for you? Okay, I'm freelancing. I got it. I love this. This is a great year. I'm gone. And no, it wasn't like that. And I wasn't. I wasn't sort of conscious of 
you know, like status in the industry or anything like that. I think I just wanted to do the work. And so I just wanted to tell stories. And so um, I had had the, when I was at RIT, I mean, this is like minutia. I don't know if anybody cares about this, but um, I, I had had the opportunity to to assist Yoshi Okamoto, who was President Johnson's personal photographer, on an assignment. He had gone freelance and he came back to Rochester to do an assignment. So how was his, my professor suggested me for that job with him, with Yoshi. So, or Oak is what everybody called him. Um, and I show up and he's like, a woman, you know, like to my face, he said, you're not even like five foot tall. How's she going to carry all my gear? I was like, I'll show you. But it was, oh, it was a hard job. But we kind of bonded. And then he introduced me to Howard Chapnick, who at the time ran Black Star. I mean, he was a person who really, I don't even think there are people like that that exist anymore in the business. I mean, he knew everyone. He was actively helping young photographers find their way. And, um, you know, I think he mostly helped guys, of course, but... You know, having Okamoto's support to meet him. And he, I like showed up at the office and he immediately sent me over to life to meet John Lowengard. And um, I mean, there were, you know, these guys, they all, it was like this network. Does it exist today? I, I think people kind of know each other, but there's so much churn in the business mm-hmm. that I don't, I don't, like, what's your experience? Do you, do, does that still exist? That sort of, no, it doesn't. I remember as a young college, you know, early years making those trips to New York and that gauntlet and going to all the magazines and you know begging for 10 minutes and you had to call. There was no email. You know, no. you were pulling people's names out of the, you know, uh, UPPA book in the catalog and black book or whatever right i mean so and you're showing your book to everybody and someone wants to keep it and you're like i got two more meetings i can't i can't give up my book and you you know and and like you said one guy knew everybody you were going to see the rest of the 48 hours yeah right today i can call and and jim doesn't know carol and carol doesn't know that bill's been fired and then like it just like how do you not know Bill was fired? <laughs> like, right. He posted it on Instagram. Like, yeah. it's, but I also think because the universe revolved in New York so much mm-hmm. that they all went to, you know, have lunch together and cocktails together, and the rivalries between Newsweek and Time they were they still weren't personal. And then there was the softball games right in Central Park where everybody played, and there was just an absolutely different time. Yeah, yeah. And everybody knew each other. Like, they either went to school together, they worked their way up together, and and now you're like, uh, nobody knows anybody. And you're, like, shocked how you don't know that person. Yes, so that's that's amazing. So you've experienced that, too. And I I think that's that's a function of... um, well, any number of things, but but the upshot is that you kind of wonder, like, where's the integrity in the system? And um, and that's what concerns me the most today. 
is, you know, we kind of learned about ethics. <laughs> and of course, I come from a family where ethics and integrity is, is a, was a, always in conversation. And, um, and I think things have just changed so that that idea of integrity is not a part of one's being anymore. You cannot assume it. It was preached to me at my lowest, and I, I don't mean this derogatory towards the job, but at the La Habra Star, a little teeny bulldog paper. Mm -hmm. It was taught to you then. Mm -hmm. the integrity, your subject mm -hmm. is the most important thing. Don't screw up this assignment. Take them chairs, you know, like you're holding a baby bird. It was yes. embedded in you at the very beginning. Yes. Not right. like midway through your career when you get to a national paper. Right. But I, but you know, we're, we always face it right every step of the way. You always face these questions where integrity is a, a critical aspect of how you make a decision. I mean, I remember one of my first Black Star assignments because um, I did a lot of corporate stuff for them and, you know, headshots and drill bits and lots of crap. And so, um, but each, but each assignment, I learned something. And I remember what was that man's name? I, I wonder if he's still in my, um, let me just put in Black Star and see what happens. I came back. I don't know. Like I was late for the, some Bush League thing. I was late for the assignment or I took a picture that someone said don't take. And then another person said I could take it. And I forget what it was. And I sent, you know, you just sent the film in and whoever was your editor did the edit. And and, and this, con this sort of micro conflict came up as he edited and sent it the work to whoever had made the assignment. So he's trying to understand. We're trying to talk through what happened. And I know this is such an amorphous example, but I will never, ever forget. This is like 50 years ago. Him saying, Phil, I think his name was Phil, saying, you know what, Lynn? His complete Brooklyn dude. You know what, Lynn? There's your truth and there's their truth and the real truth is in the middle. So, and I was like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I need to remember that. You want to be in the real truth zone. And, so. and he was 100% correct. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, like how much of life is like that? Even, especially today with our polarized world and, you know, Asking what the truth is is just a complete minefield. Now, you said a word, a term, a title that a lot of people don't have anymore. Photo editor. Yeah. <laughs> How influential or, or helpful was photo editors early in your career for having someone edit your work or, or get you somewhere? Did you have a good photo editor experience early on? Uh, yes. So most of it was, um, Black Star. And then I also worked with a woman named On Stack at Black Star. She was great. I think we forget how important they were. Like yeah. a great photo editor can absolutely make your assignment just sing. They can push for you. They go to battle when you're not around. Like mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you how much photo editors are missed in our industry today i mean i thought they still existed i mean what my my greatest experience working with photo editors and uh, really all of my career i've worked with photo editors 
So the lack of that position, I wasn't aware that there aren't any. I'm, I'm sort of aware that they don't do the traditional work that I'm used to them doing. Um, I mean, at Black Star and say at Sports Illustrated, you know, the photo editor would sort of get the act together for the assignment, give you the info, give you the contact info, let you know editorially what their expectations were. You know, you'd have a conversation. You were in relationship with those people. When I started working for Geographic and Life magazine, kind of did a lot of work for Time Life publications, the photo editor was key. At Geographic, that's when it hit its zenith. I mean, that those were truly profound relationships that I have with Geographic photo editors. I mean, they are a member of your family. You know, they're in your psyche. <clears throat> um, there was a uh, moment, and I tell this story, but it's really important. There was a moment I was visiting... Um, Marianne Golan, who just retired from the Washington Post. And at the time, I think she was with Time or Newsweek, I forget which. And, you know, I had gone to show her a project or show her work. And um, I'm sitting there and a batch of film comes in, slides. (laughs) Oh, yes. And she, she cracks open the box. She rips open the envelope, cracks open the box, and she stands over her light table. Meanwhile, you know, talking to me, like, blah, 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 like I'm hardly even there. That's okay. And she, you know how you can sort of like. Uh-huh. Like a poker uh, player. Yes, yes. And she's looking at him, like, no more than three seconds. And she yells to her her assistant, what's wrong with John? Is he okay? Or whoever. She could see that there was something wrong. He didn't feel good. He was like in the middle of a divorce. I don't know, whatever right. it was. But he could. she could see that his psyche was not whole, that he was not present, that he had not focused, that he was not telling the story. Just by five seconds looking at that film. So you cannot find people like that anymore from my experience. You know, none of the new f- folks. I don't even know if they look at the work. Right. Think, think how intimate that was that she was <laughs> able to look at slides within a short period of time and realize there's something off with this, with not just the images, but with him. That is, I, I'll bet my mortgage you're not going to find that today. I haven't experienced it in the last number of years. So that means that person is so committed and invested in you, the photographer, that they know exactly how you feel from assignment to assignment. I mean, on slides. And God love it, we can sound like two old people on a cul-de-sac screaming to get off my lawn. But when you used to throw those slides on a light table and magic happens, I don't get Mm -hmm. that with my photo mechanic. (laughs) When it propagates up, it's not the same. I'm sorry. I love those people, but it's not the same. And for her to see that is just, it, it, it warms my heart and breaks it a little bit at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, because that investment in 
the storyteller has is gone and and who that storyteller is and why mm-hmm. they tell the story and how they tell it and, and what's the story of their life and and um have you i'm sure you have been shoulder to shoulder with a role picture editor when looking at the work together mm-hmm. how was that for you it was magical there was a photographer when i was at the register uh an editor michael pilgrim uh, he's retired now and he he was an average photographer when he was at the anaheim bulletin then he got moved over to you know and they works his way up as an editor mm-hmm. his editor skills though were masterful he was an unbelievable people person he can deal with you on your worst day and your best day and mm-hmm. he was even keel he never got excited. He never got too low. He could look mm-hmm. at your stuff, though, and break it down. And he could find the one you missed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and then he would, and, and, you know, I'm early in my career. I'm 23 years old. And he's saying, hey, um, you missed this because. <laughs> and, and I, you missed the moment or you missed the frame to select the frame? Yeah, like the frame within the frame. Like, oh, if you, you it's if you just crop. It's here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, or I pick two over and he goes, no, in this story, it's this one. Because with the three of these photos together, right. right. Cause that's a lot of photos in a, news, a newspaper at the time. Now mm-hmm. the story is tight. Yeah. And it's not, you're, you're leaving a hanging Chad with this photo. Right. And that's a, that's an entirely different skill. Yeah. Like when you start to craft the story, you know, finding the image, crafting the story, um, getting it on the page, understanding what a layout is, mm-hmm. you know, how images work together, how they talk to each other. Yeah. And so having that side by side, standing over that light table and doing that, I mean, I felt like every assignment I was getting better because somebody else was breaking down my work instead of just sending in 10, like today. You know, you don't even go into the office. You just send in 10. That's what I decided. And you might be right, but you could be wrong on three of those photos. Yeah, let's say you're 25. You don't know. No, you don't know Pupkis. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you know some things, but you don't know. You don't have a master's eye. No. And so, I mean, even now, after, like, how many years have you been photographing? 35. Oh, even after 35 years, you miss stuff. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. My photo editor lives with me in this house. My wife, she's for 30 years. She's seen my work. And if she walks by the office and she looks in and goes, eh, are you sure? I, what, what? I question, what? You know, right. uh, uh, right. I'll take a second look at it or else she'll give by. She goes, that's the boy. That, that, that's the one. Mm. All right. I'll take that. <laughs> you know, you know, that's, and that's great. That's great. You know, I have a, partner who is not a photographer but um she has an amazing eye and an amazing sensibility and actually does the same and i'm always asking her like what do you think what do you think what do you think and you know i'll be sort of romanced by the beautiful frame and she's like but it's doesn't tell the story like this is the one with the impact this is so that's uh well that's because she's the reader Yes, she's also from Brooklyn, and she doesn't take prisoners. She takes no prisoners. And so, you know, it doesn't matter to her. Right. 
So you're invested in it. It's your baby egg. Exactly. Exactly. What do you mean? This is my photo. And she goes, nah, not so much. Crush it. (laughs) Well, and that just brings up this whole issue of ego, which, you know, we'll yeah, we have to fight it. We all have it. Yeah, we all have it. Or you couldn't sustain this life, but it just gets in the way. It gets in the way of, at every stage of the process. Yeah. So. Are you, do you check your ego when you go into an assignment today and realize, okay, I, I'm not going to say who I am. I am photographer X. I'm not going to say who my client is. I have just got to focus on, because you used to be able to say, I am, you know, photographer X for this magazine. And they go, oh, right this way, sir. Like right Right. into the front, you know, Mm -hmm. like that scene in, you know, where they just make room for you. But now do you just, are you more aware of it's about the subject and not me? I think I've always been aware of that because it's never been about me because I'm five foot tall and I'm female. And so, you know, I could walk in a room and nobody's like turning around. And I realized early on that that's an advantage. Now, I've heard you say that before, that you're short and shy, right? That's like a moniker of yours. I'm Mm -hmm. only 5'7", and for a guy that's well below average, Mm -hmm. uh, do you think your height has been an advantage for you? But you're a guy. That's That's the difference, you know. I mean, the... But nobody says you're a short woman. Right? Like my mom's only five feet tall. Like nobody says, Oh, you're a short woman. You might just be short, they say. Right? But but I think it's the best thing in your advantage. You could Oh just, yeah, totally. Oh, it's a total advantage. Just, I mean it takes a little while. Yeah, no, I'm always like right. you know, how to get behind or slide in and yeah. And, yeah. And nobody's but it's the female part that nobody's paying attention to you. Because you're discounted. So. It's weird. It's being male or female has a double edged sword because there's assignments I can take and I have to be aware of. Like I've done, you know, breast cancer stories. Mm -hmm. I, okay. I have to walk a fine line. Right. Um, I've done child abuse stories. As a male, you walk in and you've already got like, well, 99%. It's on you. So there's, but you can walk into a men's basketball story and they might just look at you as like, really? They sent the woman? Like, so there's, we all, you know, right? We all have this weird back and forth. Like, yeah, they did. Yeah, right? <laughs> Though they didn't send, they didn't send Walter. Right? Yeah, did you get that shit? Walter would have done the same freaking thing that he did for 50 years. I'm looking for a new thing to do. Because, like, there's no, for me, there's no status to, to maintain. I'm just here trying to take the best picture to see who you are. Yeah. I want to see who you really are. I don't care whether you're using a volleyball or a hockey puck or a basketball or a football or a what's that thing they do with brooms oh curling yes curling (laughs) curling doodah you know it's like who are you when you step off the ice off the field off the diamond off the you know Mm -hmm. like who are you as a real person 
<clears throat> I mean, that's the kind of assignment Steve Fine always used to give me. So, right. And those are the ones I wanted. I didn't. I didn't want to photograph action. Right. I, I, like I wasn't interested. Yeah. Would you? Would you tell me Al gave you a six hundred and you like what the hell? This is your world through a straw. Yeah. Through a straw. I never thought about that. I, it was like through a gun. It was like a weapon. It was very clear that the difference between being kind of a shadow in somebody's world and looking for moments that were revealing about who they were was completely at the other end of the spectrum from long glass um, shooting down the field uh, looking for action. So, but I did love Al and I did love that he was trying to save me in his perhaps mind um, that, uh, you know, putting that camera in the, in my hands. And I was like, Oh, wow. Thanks Al. This is really heavy. (laughs) Why would anyone do this to their body, carry this shit around for like 40 years? It's unbelievable, but it's just different. Mm-hmm. You know, I have complete respect. Some of the things that those guys captured is was just unbelievable that they could get those moments, uh, extreme physicality in the moments. <clears throat> and um, but so you know. I, I did my research on this. Tell me if I'm wrong. Are you? Am I correct? You're the only female staff at Sports Illustrated. There was no other female. I don't think so. There might have been a woman early, early, early on. Um, now, I found female, obviously, deputy editors, photo editors. Right now, there's a director of photography, but I couldn't find anybody on staff. Who's their director of photography? Ah, uh, Christ. Uh, oh, that's okay. Just... She was the editor. So she was, it, it thing is just imploding, and so you just kind of work your way to the top. But... How did that become? How did Lynn roll into New York and be like, hey, I'm a staff photographer at Sports Illustrated? You know, I uh, decided to go back and get my master's. So I went to, uh, I had an opportunity to be a night fellow at um, Ohio. Ohio, Ohio yeah. University. <clears throat> and so that means I had to stop working. You know, because that program is very intense and it's a like year and a half, two year program. Now, what made you want to go back and get your master's? Oh, because I had lost, completely lost faith in the business. What, what, what made that happen? Um, a couple of things. Um, but most importantly, I had done a story about the dragging death of James Byrd okay. in Texas, Jasper, Texas, black man dragged literally to pieces <clears throat> down a country road. And um, uh, a writer, Claudia Dowling, and I were working on this project. And um, it was ready to go to press and the Columbine shooting happened and they canceled the story. They like, it was on the press and they canceled the story and they cobbled together something about the kids at Columbine. Obviously the beginning of a trend we are still living today, mm-hmm. completely tragic, but <clears throat> I thought, you know, they could have that, that to me said, this black man's life was not the same value 
as these white kids at Columbine. Because they were both essentially hate crimes or mm-hmm. crime. Right. That same human need to, um, you know, act out violently against others. So I was like, and I couldn't, like, I couldn't change anybody's mind. I couldn't impact the decision. I couldn't, you know, I was just this little photographer who, but but it was a powerful story. We had access that was unbelievable to the um, behind the scenes um, legal team <clears throat> that was driving the case. <clears throat> we spent weeks and weeks and weeks in the community trying to understand race relations and prejudice. And I mean, it was a powerful project. So I'm like, I'm done, man. I'm done. I can't I need something else to do. And then a gentleman who had been a geographic offered me this opportunity. He had moved to OU and uh, he offered me this opportunity to do the fellowship. So I took it thinking I could kind of work it out there. Right. So what's that late nineties? I don't know. I'm trying to remember when Columbine was in that story with Bird. Okay. So you're at you're at Ohio and then how does Sports Illustrated come? So I had been working for Steve Fine for a while and I was like, oh shit, I need to make a living too. You know. <laughs> Girl needs and to I, eat. <laughs> I yeah. I don't wanna just totally give up. I mean, I'm not gonna work for life anymore because I'm profoundly angry at them and um <clears throat> And I forget where I was with Geographic at that point. Um, you know, maybe uh, assignments once in a while. So I forget. <clears throat> so Steve and I had a conversation about, I forget who brought up the idea of being on staff. I think he did. Okay. You'd have to check with Steve. His brain cells are gone. But um, he, I was like, okay, well, that could be cool because, you know, I'm on staff and I can do assignments on my off time and holidays and blah, blah, blah. And then we had a discussion about being on the masthead. I said, Steve, by that time, you know, I had a few stories under my belt and I was not a kid anymore. And I sort of understood the value of the kind of, storytelling I could do. And I said, I, I want to be on the masthead. I mean, it's like the only thing I ever asked for. I didn't ask for assignments. I didn't ask to be treated any particular way, but I'm like, you know what? If I'm on, if I am on staff, I also want, he had every excuse in the book. Well, we can't just tear the, you know, the whatever you call that table of contents apart, just put you in the masthead. And I'm like, okay, then let's not do it. Radio silence. And then finally he decided, well, okay, we'll put you on the masthead. So, and then I think it was the only female name on that for a while. And that was seven years that I was there. And then they started to just fire everybody, you know, (laughs) First, the black guy and the woman were gone. <laughs> we got fired first. There. And then I think they kind of let everybody go. And uh, 
That sounds like a bad CBS sitcom. The black guy and the woman. Like it's just Yeah. Gone. Yeah. Yeah. And uh but that's okay. You know, it was marvelous and I remember okay, you know, this is the best part about making that trip into life when you would go to New York. I would ask whoever it was, when when Mo was there or uh mm-hmm. anybody, hey, mm-hmm. um, what's someone working on? Can I can I take a look at whoever? You know, if there was a the bag came in and you know it was ready to look at and somebody's a light table, I'd always be like, Can I take a peek? What do we got? What are we working on? Nice. And to see your work and Beaver and McDonough, who I worked with, and see it raw. Mm-hmm. That was a master class of being mm-hmm. inside your guys's head. Because it's mm-hmm. one thing looking at what gets published. Oh, that's but, different. But like we see, when I can lay out all 36 of your images in a row and now be in your head, what was Lynn thinking from frame one? to frame 37 because she was somehow able to squeeze that extra bonus out of there. Like, you know, (laughs) it's a, to see it like, Oh, Mm -hmm. she moved to the left. She, she circled the subject. She stepped back. Mm -hmm. Yes. She stepped in. She she, mustn't, she must not have shot for several minutes and gone to another role. Where's the other camera? There's another role in the other camera. (laughs) That was gold going Mm -hmm. into that building and seeing that. Interesting. Yes, that way that you move as a photographer is, and you could also see that you, sometimes you didn't know what the hell you were doing. Right, and that's okay. You got lost. You fell down. You, you know, the person left. They yelled at you and left, or you it know, just didn't work. That happens. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work sometimes. I, I remember being in uh, Russia on an assignment about Pushkin, the most beloved poet there, and with a a really great photo editor, a woman named Susan Welshman. And she's, I'm trying to like photograph this guy, I don't know, rehabbing some cathedral. And and she's looking at me <laughs> and I'm moving around and I'm trying this, I'm trying that. And she said, she used to call me Linsky. Linsky, sometimes it just isn't there. It just doesn't work. And then she walked out of the building and I'm like, uh, okay, right. You have to know when to walk away. Right. Oh, yeah. just, we're done. We're done here. We're done. She says, I see nothing. You've clearly not seen anything <laughs> the camera. So maybe we should just go check something else out. Right. Let's go have a drink and we'll figure it out. Yeah. Little vodka will help. Right. Yeah. And if not, at least it's a drink and you just work it out. I know that's. Did you need someone to say, hey, let's throw in the towel right now or were you just to oh, just keep grinding would you have just kept going and going oh yes and and who knows if i had wouldn't have found something you know that was that perspective mm-hmm. and so i think we have to learn how to you know keep our own perspective as well and um but i think that 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 never giving up is actually part of how I work. Right. So, uh, and now I'm working on this project about profound autism and, and I might spend days with a family and for many, many hours, something significant may not happen, but I'm not there on assignment. This is a project I care about. And so 
for me, what is happening in those times when I'm not photographing is a building of the relationship because these folks have allowed me into their lives. And I honor that by listening and by learning who they are and what their struggle is. So Steve Fine would never have paid me for that. You couldn't, you can't pay anyone for that. You know, that's a different thing, you know, for an assignment, you know, you go in, you have your, sometimes even they, they started giving you a shot list at life. They started giving a shot list. I was like, Oh, this is bad. Right. Once that happened, I felt, Oh God, we're in trouble. Because it used to be, we hired you for your skill set. Yes. When did that happen? When did that start to happen to you that they started to give you a list of what you're supposed to get? The internet. The the internet. I have, I have literally had multiple conversations with Miss Brown and it has been the internet, the power that she said, she Mm -hmm. said you were like a dog with a bone and you would work an assignment and Mm -hmm. you would work it until you felt you nailed it. Mm -hmm. Internet happens. They give you a list and they need these things shot because they need it for a damn gallery on the internet. Right. And they've, they can see from the internet what exists. The clicks, the clicks through. Oh, they stayed on this detail longer than they did the landscape. We want more details. Brown come back with more details. And you're like, well, the story might only have one good detail in it. Right. You want six? I feel that's, that's what happened. The internet gave me a shot list. Hmm. Because, because then the bean counters going to the editor and saying, Hey, we got 13,000 clicks on this story. And we Mm -hmm. saw that they stayed in a duration on this photo longer than that photo. So we don't want those photos. We want these photos. And I would say, well, that was that story. I can't Mm -hmm. make this story, that story's, Mm -hmm. you know, clicks and durations. That's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. You know, your autism story might pull in a certain segment of people and they are invested in it. Mm-hmm. And then other people go, it's not my thing. I, I don't have children or it hasn't affected my life. And that's with every story. You, you know, you try to hit as many people as you can in a story. Mm-hmm. But sometimes because who we are, we work a certain story because of our love for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's what happens. And I, I so... Yeah, I think it's the damn internet gave me the mm-hmm. shot list. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Are you? Oh, I mean, I remember thinking of uh, a shot list. What is this? And of course, I'm immediately, I'm not doing this. <laughs> right, push back. You know, I didn't, I don't think I said it. Right, in your head. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, and then you just go out and you tell the story. Mm-hmm. And if you did a good job, then nobody remembers the shot list, but mostly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you, how did you adjust from film to digital in your creative process? Uh, I didn't adjust very well. In fact, I, I would say I was photographing a lot of geographic at that point and and I stayed with film a lot longer than most people. And I was doing a lot of two and a quarter at the time, a lot of Hasselblad work. And so I could get away with doing film. 
and then, you know, just slowly, uh, Leica started to come out with digital cameras, and I've used Leicas for my whole career, and um, and so I decided to try because the interface was the same, the camera's the same, it looks the same. It reads the same from the perspective of the person you're photographing. And so just slowly I transitioned. But, um, yeah, I think the thing about digital, and I see it when I watch young people photograph, is that the relationship is with the camera and not the person or the scene or the issue that you're working on. And so, and that's really... You know, that's that's a discipline to not to make the relationship primary um, with the with the story. That should be the relationship, you know, the people, the story. Right. It's, you know, and, I'm sorry. And no, no, I, I was going to say, like I told you, I went to the Yucatan over the summer <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm there. And I'm with my partner uh, who we do video with and. Mm-hmm he saw me turn my back screens off on my digital camera. Mm. It was the first time we had gone out on an assignment together, right? We're five days in the jungle. And he goes, why are you doing that? And I said, cause I don't want to look. Mm-hmm. I am with these Mayans who don't speak English. I, wow. I don't need to be spending time looking at my pictures. I could do that later in the hotel. And I turned it off like they were broken. And if mm-hmm. I needed to check my exposure, mm-hmm. add a meter. I'm yeah, in a, I'm in a canopy in the jungle. There's no, you know, not, nothing's changing. Mm-hmm. And and I think more people need to do that because you said the relationship begins with that damn camera instead of your subject, and it's the worst thing you can do as a photographer is be taken away from your subject. Right. And I think part of that conversation is actually part of it is gear. And part of it is our language. We are tr- kind of trained in this business to think in terms of subject, but actually that is not a subject. That is a person. Mm-hmm. It is their lives. Their lives are the story. And so um, I think we also have to be careful about the language that we use when we talk about people we're documenting or even a place that you're documenting, mm-hmm. you know, it is alive also. So I I try never to use the word shoot or subject, all the S words, off limits. Really? Yeah. So it's <laughs> photograph and people? Yeah, sure. People, issue... Subject matter, that's a different thing. Right. You know, when like, did you start thinking that? When did that come into your lexicon? Um, I think when I started to really teach seriously, like when I was at that master's program, you did the coursework. And uh, I also had to teach for two of the semesters. And I think in teaching, I started to listen to those other things like language. And then I did a kind of mentoring program at Syracuse University for five years. And that's when I really started to understand the impact of language and um, and actively talk about how do we 
think about the people on the other side of the camera. It may take you longer to say that, but that's okay. They deserve it. Yeah. You know, you know, you just said that. Are we getting the photography we deserve? Hmm. Oh, wow. Do you mean in the news cycle or just in, in general, just the, you know, whether it's in a magazine or in the news cycle, are we getting the photography we deserve today? Because you and I have lived long enough, we've seen we've seen change from when we started in the eighties and th- through now. Um. Well, I think it's just like at any time in history, there are certain people who are t- who take more time with the project, and others who were, you know, doing rapid fire documentation. Um, it's not. And so I think the the gauntlet is is how the imagery is shared. It's not in some ways it's the is there integrity in the gathering of the photographs in the process of documentation photographing and then you have this sort of massive issue of the distribution of visual art form and journalism and that's that's a profound discussion there. Like it would be very cool if you would host a forum of maybe four or five picture editors and photographers to talk about that. Because I think we have less and less power over um, what gets used, how it gets used. And so that's, that's a problem. I mean, I know it's geographic. We the photographer used to be a full member of the editorial team. That does not exist anymore. So I hand in the work, and you know, I, I mean, like I can add my comments coming behind just before it hits the page or the screen. But really, that's even not guaranteed. You have to fight for that. So um, you're the person on the scene. You know what the reality was. Again, like Phil, there's their truth, your truth, the other truth. <laughs> so you have to navigate that. But um, you have to have people who are conscious of navigating that. So um, I don't know if that's the right question. Are we getting the photography we deserve? We're getting what we're getting. C- could it be better? Should people be more educated in the ethics of gathering? Yes, absolutely, no question. Yeah. I... I- that came to me the other day when I was doing my research for you because you're doing the work I want to see. Mm. And some people will say, well, you know, the Time of Life magazine or National Geographic, big project things, they've gone by the wayside. Well, that's on us then because we should, we should mm. want to see those. Mm-hmm. Damn it, we should demand to see those you know everybody wants to eat at morton's but they want to pay mcdonald's prices mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. if you want a great steak you want a great meal you got to pay for it you're not going to get into mcdonald's mcdonald's right. is where you get when you're going from point a to point b and you don't have a choice to stop anywhere else right the photos that we deserve are going to take time to get I have to send Lynn out for months and I leave her alone. I check in. I make sure she's alive. That's it. But I don't bug her. I don't give her a shot list. 
And when she comes back with this project, I want a great project. Mm-hmm. I don't want an abridged three-day project. That, that's the only m- amount of money we had for her. Mm-hmm. You got to pay for it. You got to want it. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the magazines you and I grew up on are gone because we stopped buying them. Well, we were told there was no readership. I mean, I think that, again, it's the Internet. It's the, you know, screen time. It's that churn of visuals where people have become desensitized. Um, You know, the, the appetite is for the extreme, whether it's true or not. And so, and the more our education system gets degraded and the more books that are banned and the more... Did I hear something on the news yesterday that, like, Florida is banning the dictionary? I'm like, okay, that cannot be true. Is that true? No. Oh. Nah. You know, that's the thing. Okay, right. what is true? Right. What's true? Yeah. What, what, like, what outlet are you right. listening to? Where are you looking? What, Like, where do you, where does your appetite take you? So, um You know, I think it's like you can be part of the solution. You can be part of the problem. If you just give in to the fact that you believe, um, you know, like Geographic's doing this clickbait thing now on their Instagram. WTF, man. Yeah. They they should be keeping the high ground. They're not available on the newsstand anymore. You can't buy the magazine. I blame that on Disney. That's their call. They bought it and they've just shit it to death. I mean, just God. It was the blessed moment to go to my grandparents' house and go into my grandfather's office and see that yellow wall that he would have. And I'd go in there and I'd look at those photos. I want to do that someday. Now, what do I do? I, I, I pick up my phone. And look at National Geographic that way on a little teeny screen? That's crap. It's it's the time of, I'm sure you rode the subway at some point in the 80s and 90s in New York and everybody was had a, mag- had a newspaper in the morning. Everybody was reading. Whether it was the Post, the Times, the whatever, you name it. When they came in from Connecticut or they came in from Jersey, they were on the thing reading. Now everybody's playing a game or catching up on the Kardashians or some crap like that. I know. I said, uh, you know, you wonder if the brain itself is going to be degraded over time. Yeah. Well, that, and that's where I came saying, do, are we getting the photos we deserve? Mm-hmm. Right. Like if, if, if we're crapping in our brains, yes, we're getting what we deserve. Are we getting what we need to, Elevate the human experience right. on all sides. You know you need to get out, exercise, get some sun, and walk. But instead, mm-hmm. you binge watch 14 hours of Netflix. You got what you deserved. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there are still people out there doing the real work. Like um, a colleague of mine, Harriet Brown, she teaches journalism at Syracuse. She and I band together to... Um, do this work on uh, children who are using cannabis as rural medicine. It started as a geographic story in, I don't know, 2000-something. And uh, I just stayed connected to those families and continued to document them, even after the story was over. So after three or four years of doing that, I 
started teaching at Syracuse and asked Harriet to be a part of the project. So just yesterday, uh, Virginia Quarterly Review decided to use the project. And I haven't been that excited to have a piece on the page in a long time. So um, why is lo- that? Why? Because you worked on it so long. Well, because it's it's like a validation of the of the value of those kids' lives and the courage of those parents trying something that could actually get them locked up um, because they were trying to save their kids' lives. And now here's um, Paul Reyes at, at VQR saying, "Oh, well, let's." you know, devote some time and space to this. And they had tremendous integrity in putting the piece together. I mean, it's still just a fragment of the material, but it was the experience of working with them that was amazing. How Um, many hours did you put in on that? Years, right? I mean, you just... Oh, 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 years, like seven, eight years. Oh, my God. Yeah, And, um, and Harriet, you know, like four, five, six years, I'm not sure, but, you know, tons of interviews. And so, and then also just in February, um, I did a story for Geographic about pediatric hospice care here in Pittsburgh, and that will be out in February in Geographic. But Lynn, working on a project that long, like seven years, Mm -hmm. Do you worry that either your style changes, you change, you know, I mean, you're a different person from seven years. That sounds silly, but you know, anything can happen. You have death of a parent, a sibling, a friend, whatever that can affect you. Do you ever think of a project that long and what that means to you? Oh, that's a great question because I expect that to happen. That needs to happen. So, is there a style change? I have no idea, but um, but if that's meant to be, or if there needs to be a style change to honor the story, then then that's fine. Uh, it's not like you're looking for consistency; you're looking for powerful storytelling. So, um, in fact, yes, both of my parents have passed in that time, and um, so. Um, yeah, you, I think that's, that's that other strand of storytelling is that you also are growing and that is an important part of the conversation. It's not just you're doing the work or taking pictures. You're, you're growing as a human, you're maturing as a storyteller. So if you're doing that, there's a problem. Do you find it hard to photograph these kids maybe when you care so much about the story? Do you have to kind of keep that distance? I'm capturing, I'm cre- I'm trying to create a beautiful story here, but I'm, I'm trying not be, to be overly invested in your outcome in the story. Oh, I do want to be invested. Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody taught you that in school, you know, or something, you know, that uh, idea of objectivity is just, I think that's just bullshit. You, you have to be fair, you have to be aware, but objectivity is like, that just doesn't exist because you bring who you are to the work. And, um, 
And so, no, I think I have the ability to be intimately present and slightly disconnected because of my birth story. And I only understood that fairly recently. Right. Right. Yeah. But being adopted, being like given up after birth, three months in the hospital, you don't like that idea of being connected has been profoundly changed. And what I learned was that I've been given the universe has presented opportunities and stories over the years that has helped me work the puzzle of, of myself and my psyche at the same time as allowing me into the lives of these amazing humans that I've met to tell their story that it's, it all runs parallel. Wow. That's see, that's, that's where I tell people I don't have a job. Like what I do is not a job. I am blessed to have mm-hmm. a camera and be in people's lives, capture moments. Like for you to be able to work things through that, through your subjects, that is beautiful. We're lucky. Yes, we're lucky. And so, you know, I can ask you what in your life, what drives you? Like if you look back to your earliest moment, childhood, is there some nugget there, some sparkle, some awareness that is still a part of your path today? Yes. Of- and it was it was it was really visually simple. It's when my grandfather, my father, or my uncle, right, the three men in my lives, they really mm-hmm. had the cameras and were in control of the images of you know, the holidays, right? Because it's 1974. You didn't bring the camera out for everything because it was an expense. So you brought it out at Easter and Christmas and birthday parties, 4th of July. When they brought the camera up, we're all at a Thanksgiving dinner meal. We're at my grandparents' house. We're all sitting. I'm at the kids' table. When they brought the camera up, everybody stopped and turned and smiled and was aware and wouldn't be goofy because it meant something. Mm. A photo was going to be taken and it meant something. And you might not see that photo from Thanksgiving until maybe Christmas or even New Year's because that roll of 24 on that 110 didn't come out all the time. So, oh my God, you wore that? It's Easter. You wore that at Thanksgiving? I can't believe that. It was so powerful, those photos, especially in the 70s, to see those that to watch literally everybody be aware in the moment was intoxicating to me to like everybody was 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 happy was excited to have that happen to them mm-hmm. and i was like oh my god this is unbelievable to watch this happen and then when i would was old enough and would steal my father's camera and take it to, you know, the creek and shoot Jimmy Crow jumping his bike off the dirt ramp and we'd only take one or two photos. Everybody thought that was the greatest thing ever. We're evil Knievel. <laughs> Matt's got his dad's camera. That only lasted for a 
couple of months until I, you know, was told we don't steal dad's camera and take it down to the creek anymore. <laughs> yeah. But that was, that, it sounds so simple, but we forget what it really meant when that camera used to come out as a kid. Right. So it was special, but it made you feel special. Yeah. It you special. Yeah. Yeah. It there's, there, there's photos today, like, you know, Christmas just happened. I think maybe several hundred photos were taken between my son's phones, my wife, mine, my real camera. Everybody's taking photos. People are shooting vertical, vertical videos, whatever. It's all being done. I can go back to 1980 and there might only be 12 photos. Mm. But each one of those 12 photos have an absolutely magical moment. Yes. Yeah. There's, Devalued. there's, there's photos that, that were taken of me as a young boy that if this house was burning down, I would jump over the dog and grab those photos first <laughs> before anything else. My computer can burn to the crisp. I don't care. But there's a photo of me sitting on my great grandmother's lap. I'm like three years old wearing a God awful engineer outfit because I guess every boy had to look like they were working on the railroad in 1974. <laughs> and I, in my hand, I am holding her cigarette. I am literally her ashtray. Oh, wow. I'm sitting there and I'm happy as can be with a cigarette in her lap. And she's got a scotch, probably three fingers yeah. high. And she's telling a story, but I'm her human ashtray. Oh my God, that's fabulous. And today, social services would take you off the internet for that. Yeah. <laughs> but I was in the best place of my life. Like I'm sitting with my great grandmother in her lap. Right. You belonged. Yeah. I'm in the you adult belonged. room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course I was an ashtray, but it was a great moment. <laughs> you were participating. Yeah. Right. It, those, those moments are really special. They really, really are. They really are. With the autism story, mm -hmm. walk me through that. How do you, how do you come about and say, okay, I have an autism you know, idea or a project or I saw a lead that led me to it. How did that one come about? Well, I had been talking with an editor, colleague, friend, Kathy Moran at Geographic for some time about autism. And because I have a friend who has two boys who are profoundly on the spectrum, um, okay. who I've been documenting for like 10 years now. And um, so finally, so for some reason, they weren't interested, weren't interested. But then there was an editor at Geographic um, who had a friend who had a child on the spectrum. And she was a writer. So all of a sudden now everything comes together. Kathy asked me if I wanted to do the assignment. And so we did do the story that appeared, I think it was like 2019, just before COVID completely shut down the world. So... It was in the magazine, and just like the cannabis story and so many other stories, I, I kept working with the families and have now kind of uh, expanded the idea. I became aware of, you know, it because it's a spectrum. And we, for the story, worked mostly with kids who were speaking and 
you know, what most people think of as autism is the sort of quirky, eccentric, savantish kind of child or person. Mm -hmm. But there's this whole end of the spectrum where the folks are profound and severe. And those families feel quite unsupported and invisible. So once I became aware of that, I started to want to document those families. And these kids are, you know, often violent to, they have a lot of self-injurious behavior. They can be violent to others. It's difficult to find help for them. Um, You know, day programs, therapeutic programs, it's really, it's just a, it's, it's just a, it's just extraordinary to be in their presence. Um, And the families are really suffering and they, they don't know what to do. And, you know, most of them say, well, I can never die because nobody's going to take care of my child because he's always coming at you, you know, violently. And only they know how to control that or they love him enough to deal with it. Right. So. It's a tough subject. Oh, tough. And, you know, it's like you, your question, are we getting the photographs we deserve well, yeah, because you know what? We're we're not society is not creating a safety net for these families. And so these are the lives that we need to see. Do you want to see them? I don't know, maybe not, but I'm going to show them to you anyway. Yeah. You're going to look at this. Yeah, because you know, we're responsible for the human family. And I feel like that's part of what I need to do oh. is document those, those folks. Have you ever had moments of struggle where you're on an assignment and it just doesn't seem right? You kind of kind of work it out? Oh, yeah. How do you do that? Well, it depends on what the not right part is. Like it's just you're not right. It's whatever you're doing. It's just it doesn't seem like you're, if you go left, they go right. Or you go low, they go higher. It's not the right light. I mean, it's just those, you know, where you can relate, go back and say, okay, step back, Lynn. This is how we got to approach it again. Like, do you take a, a moment or how do you, how do you deal with those issues? Well, it kind of depends on what it is. I might just leave for a while and come back. Um, or I might actually talk about it with the people who are in the story, you know, is there something I'm not understanding here? You know, try to have good communication. Um, I always ask permission to photograph. And sometimes I ask, um, even in the throes of something going awry, you know, because I might say, Oh, you know, this is important. May I photograph? Like I was photographing in a program for the, these uh, autistic folks the other day. And one of the people who was trying to help one of these kids got injured. And he's like there with in his hand. And I'm like, Ben, is it okay if I photograph you? Because this is what you risk when you do this work. I mean, he's like in the middle of it. But I felt like I could lose the photograph, but I needed the permission because I'm only there. 
I'm telling the story for them. You know, this isn't for me. It's partly for me because I believe in it, but it's also for them. And if I'm, you know, trespassing into some area that is, is not dignified for that person, then I need to know that. So, um, we did a story about dying. Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. no, no. I was going to say, you, you said communicating, and that's huge. Communicating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so often we have the camera, and we forget that, you know, this person you're spending time with, you can set this camera down and talk to them. Oh, my God, all the time. That's the most important thing. And then when you pick the camera up, you have an understanding or you have a shared um, perspective or, and, and you can feel whether it's okay or not. But if you haven't had the conversation or if you don't keep the communication alive, you, you don't know if it's okay. Yeah. And sometimes it's not okay in the moment, but you have to photograph because you know that it's a true moment. And then you, might have to deal with it later. I mean, you know, it's like there's so many variables. There's no one way. Um, I do think it's important to know when to walk away, though. Do you get? Do you have that sense? You you can kind of feel it between the two of you. That synergy, like okay, it's it's time. Yeah, I'll, I'll say. I, I think I need to give you guys a break. It's hard to be observed. Because then you start to see yourself differently and you, and you can tell when people start to act differently, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that you're creating stress beyond, you know, I don't photograph people who aren't already under stress. Like that's what I do. Right. So if your presence is cranking up their stress, then that's something to be aware of. If it's actually, you know, siphoning off the stress, that's also something to be aware of, but you know, it's not. That's a good point. You do show up in some in people's most stressful moments of their lives. You're not doing birthday parties and bar mitzvahs. Right. Well, sometimes, but usually it's because it may not live for the, another year, you know. Right. right. So, yeah. yeah, so everything is always charged with emotion, anticipation, trauma. Has your career been good to you? Hmm. I think of it as a life. And yes, I feel very fortunate. Yeah. I'm glad you went to the library and got hooked on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm glad. I I um I can't thank you enough for this time. Um it really is, you know, a, a hour and a half inside the mind of a master. You you are magnificent. I love the work you do. You know, you keep going until they pull that camera out of your hands and say, okay, Lynn, it's time for you to go to the, yeah, it's time for you to stop young lady. (laughs) (laughs) Honey, there's not a card in that camera. You got to set it down. (laughs) I just ordered another one. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not stopping anytime soon. What are you shooting on? Let's have a gear. Let's have a gear moment. What are you shooting on? Uh, so I use Leicas. I have M11. I have two M11s, one with a kind of new 35 and a 21. And then I have a Q3. Uh, okay. Um, 
that I really love because it's it's not the old school Leica rangefinder, right. but it's it you know it just has enough variability and you can change I don't know it's just like it's just a kind of like malleable you know right is that the monochrome one no uh-uh. okay no the color one okay but I do shoot black, mostly black and white and I just set the JPEG right. for black and white and the DNJ for color and blah 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 and there you go all right well kids stay out of the library <laughs> There's trouble in the library. You can get into the library and demand every book that you want. Demand your library have it, carry it, and loan it out to you. You know, it's funny. I think I, I, as much as adults, we're such idiots on this whole banning books and books going here and there. Last time I was at the library, there were more adults there than children, and that broke my heart. Like. Mm. We're all worried about the kids. There's no kids here, damn it. Get the kids to the library. Exactly. Get the kids to the library. Yeah. Get yourself to the library. That should be our shirt, Lynn. Get the kids to the library. Yes. There you go. <laughs> you too could be hooked on the camera. <laughs> You'd be in a seven-step program with Lynn and I. There we go. Get those, get the get a get a forum together, Matt, so we can talk about. People can talk about, like, what's the next step in this profession? Like, how do we not, um, how do we elevate people so that they can believe in the image again? Yeah. How do people believe in the image? I will reach out and I will put you on that list. Oh, I'd be honored. It's a pleasure. Thank you for letting me blah, 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 talk. And, you know, usually we're kind of listening and silent behind the camera. So, right. It's weird. Well, Thanks it, you do. I, I, again, I can't thank you enough, Lynn. This has been an absolute pleasure. Okay. If you're talking to Steve, fine. Tell him I said hi. I, I will. I'll reach out to Steve and, and, and tell him you said, get me on the mass head. <laughs> <laughs> He'll have his own story about that, I'm sure. He always has his own story. Truth. (laughs) Right. There's in the middle. Yeah. Um, Oh, I I was doing research up until last night, and I want to ask you this. Did you um, ever have a chance to spend time with VJ Lavero? No, I really didn't. I mean, once in a while. See in the office. Last yesterday was 20, a 20 year anniversary of him passing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Because I was looking up, you know, staffers at Sports Illustrated. Your name was on there and I saw his name and I was like, oh, I wonder if they, you know, I know you opposite coast and very different kind of way yeah. you guys would work at stuff, mm-hmm. but I don't know if you guys ever rubbed elbows at a, an Olympics or something. Not, I mean, we were probably at Olympics together, yeah. but, um, also, you know, I never felt like I could hang out with the guys, so I, I might have gone to a dinner or Man, something. if there was anybody that could hang with the boys, it would be you. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Yeah, Al would have his 600 over his shoulder, and you'd have your right. little Leica around your neck. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah. It was such a fun time. Fun time. 
You keep yeah. making pictures, young lady. Just keep okay. making them. You too, Matt. You're Take the, care. You're the best. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Lynn Johnson. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.